all that means is we preach through books of the Bible. So when we launched this new church plant in August of 2022, we started with the book of Acts and we took 37 weeks and we preached our way through the book of Acts. But before we jumped into another book of the Bible or an Old Testament book of the Bible, we really sensed that it would be wise of us to make sure we're on the same page about a few things. So we, we did this little five-week little mini-part series called Foundations. What are the actual foundations of our faith? What is it that we're trying to build? When we read through books like Acts, we read through books like Ezra and Nehemiah. It's a little hint for you, okay, in a couple weeks. Um, what's the importance of that? How can, how can we even trust that that's God's word for us? How does that apply to us? So we, we started, what, three weeks ago talking about the gospel, that we're really built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. That's from 1 Corinthians 3. Today, uh, y'all, I'm really excited about building on the, the, what we've said the last three weeks of a foundation uh, with CBC Savannah's lead pastor, Bill Fowler. So Bill has, has kindly agreed to come down and preach for us. If you don't know Bill, um, what you need to know and what you're going to experience uh, this morning is he has a passion for the Word of God. Bill carries a passion for God's Word. I had the privilege of being on staff with Bill uh, for about a year before we planted and uh, there was a lot that I gleaned. There was a lot that I took away about church, about church planting. But more than anything, I think what I walked away with is it was a deeper hunger and a fire for God's word. Just being around Bill, just being around their church, that's something that they kind of they ooze by osmosis. So excited that Bill came down here. Bill's going to be looking at Ephesians 2.20, which says, We were built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, specifically the scriptures. How can we trust that the Bible is the word of God? How can we trust that it's still for us today? How can we trust when there's so many as he's going to explain variants, uh, variances in our, in our um, what am I looking for, translations. So uh, excited, Bill, that you're here. Um, CBC Savannah has, if you don't know this, if you're new with us, they, they planted us. They hired me to plant this church. They have been so generous, not only in their financial provision of us as a church, but also in their sending of people. So many people came from CBC Savannah to help us plant this church. So Bill, thanks for taking a step aside from Savannah coming south of the Ogeechee, what it took you about 20 minutes to get here. He had to get a hotel, he says. It's so far away. Um, but let me pray for Bill, and let me pray for us as Bill opens up God's word for us this morning. Father, thank you so much um, just for the example, for the model that Bill has been for me, that CBC Savannah has been for our church. Um, Lord, as we open up your word this morning and as we, as we read about uh, you from your word, how we can, we can trust the reliability of your word as actually being your word, I pray that you would open up our minds to walk away with a deeper trust in your word. God, we want your word in our hands. We want it in our head. We want it in our hearts. But I pray today that we would all walk away, not only with a deeper hunger for your word, but a deeper trust in the reliability of it. So Lord, I pray that you would bless Bill, bless Bill over the next um, several minutes as he preaches through God's word. I pray that you would bless him as the lead pastor at CBC Savannah. Give him wisdom. Lord, your word says if anybody lacks it, you give it generously to all without finding fault. I pray that you continue to give him generous wisdom as he is a light and salt in the city of Savannah. In Jesus' name, amen. You're welcome, brother. He, he prayed that for a few minutes. Uh, I think that was ironic because I preached, and they told me I went like 15 minutes over first service. So it's because I didn't have a clock in the back of the wall. I thought, I'm used to seeing this countdown clock that I have, and it tells me you have 40 minutes, and that's it. And so I haven't preached that long in like eight years. So this, this is my way of not getting invited back. That's what I did for service. So don't invite me back to this place again. You know, No, it's, I haven't been since opening Sunday, and this is uh, since then. So I'm privileged to be back uh, and, and come. And um, for many of you, I recognize, and many of you, I don't, which I'm excited about that. That's awesome. 
Uh, if you've, uh, how many of you have never been to CBC's Vantage, just out of curiosity? A bunch of you. Great. That's awesome. I'm so thankful that you haven't. So you won't know how bad we are really down there. And you, you, you can look with favorable eyes on uh, Andrew and what they're doing here now. So um, a little bit about me. I'm just like Andrew. Just We're the same height. As you can tell, that's why we hired him. We didn't really care about his background. We just hired him because he was short. Uh, that's what we loved about him. And uh, now, uh, born, in the 80s, born in the 70s, a child of the 80s. Uh, and so I am here to educate you not only on the scripture, but on the 80s culture this morning. Uh, if you know anything about me, that's kind of one of our, our running jokes. But um, thankful to be here and talk about a topic which we are uh, passionate about, which is what kind of a core values of our church is together. Uh, is and, and for your specs, for those of you who have gone, kind of gone through that class, is we put ourselves under the scripture, and there's a reason why, and so hopefully today you'll understand a little bit why. So there's this great movie in the 80s. There's a lot of great movies in the 80s, just so you know, but there's a great movie. It's called The Hunt for October. You know this movie? Yes. Okay, some of you know this movie. Some of you don't. All right. The Hunt for October, Sean Connery. Uh, he's a Russian admiral uh, with a Scottish accent, right? So that's the way it works, you know. And, and, and his kind of number two guy is the guy from Jurassic Park. You know that guy? Okay. And so there's this great scene when uh, Sean Connery says, give me one ping, Vasily. Just one ping. You know, a Scottish-Russian accent. And Vasily says, uh, Captain, I, I understand. And he's like, just give me one ping, Vasily. Can you give me one ping? One ping only, please. And so he does it, and, you know, they save the day, and the universe isn't blown up. But uh, there's this their concept, this principle of sometimes we have to trust when we don't know what's going on. You don't see the behind the scenes, but you just have to trust and do what you know is right because, because it's right. And that's good. And that builds our faith. And we do this with our kids, right? Be home at 11. Why? Because. That's why, right? You could be, and, and you'll get it when you're, and you're old like me and you're not. A, we don't want to wait up for you is really what the reality is. That's, <laughs> so get home by 11 because that's late for us anyway. But sometimes knowing the why actually increases our faith as well and helps equip us. Right? And we need to know the why. Peter encourages us and challenges us right? that we are to be prepared to give an account of the hope that is within us with gentleness and reverence, to give an account of the hope that the idea is an apologia. We get our English word apologetics. Some of you, like, you know, get excited about apologetics. That's where it comes from, that you should be able to answer the why behind the what. And the church has usually been pretty good with the what. Right? We've been pretty good with the what for 2,000 years. We haven't real been real good with the why. And we live in a day and age with, with skepticism and when it's questioned everything, that, that it's not enough for you to say, well, and Pastor Andrew says so. That's why. That's just not enough. Right? Uh, that you need to know why you believe what you believe as well as what. And what we want for y'all, and, and this is one thing we didn't do well in the beginning. And I think Andrew and Coleman and your elders are doing, doing a better job. Is we, we grew at such a point that it was like we, we had no time to get any depth. So we were a mile wide and an inch deep for a, for a big season of our life. We had a bunch of SCAD students. That was exciting. But we were a mile wide and an inch deep. And, and it's important for you as you grow to grow deep first and then grow wide, right? Because you want, you want to have this, uh, the maturity so that you can then disciple and lead others uh, into the truth, as, as, as their questions come. And so what we want to talk about today really is the why behind the what, right? And jumping from your, your idea of foundations, right, that we are the household of God. I use, I use slides, y'all. I know Andrew doesn't because he doesn't believe in technology, but that's all right. Uh, 
I don't know how to use not. It's really because I can't read my Bible because my eyes are so bad because I'm almost 50. That's why he slides. But, but here's where I go. So we're members of the household of God, and we're built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And Jesus is the cornerstone, right? He's the one, the whole structure is being joined together. It goes into a holy temple. The enemy attacks foundations, right? You want to take down a building, you take out its foundation. And so the enemy attacks. Does he attack the person and work of Jesus? Does he attack the gospel? Absolutely he does. Does he attack your holiness, which you've talked about? Absolutely he does, right? Does he attack the church? Absolutely he does. Does he corrupt it and confuse people on this concept of sin and the whole need for the gospel? I mean, we live in a world that there is no sin, or we've redefined sin, right? We call evil good, good evil, right? And so he does this. And one of his chief attacks, it has been from the very beginning, is on God's word. His very first attack on our great-great-great-great-grandparents, Adam and Eve, is what? What did he say? Did God really say? His first attack to bring down humanity was on the attack on the word of God. And then he, then he lies about God's word. He says, no, God said this, but this is what he really meant. And, it, and, he, and, he, and he confuses and he checks. And he's still doing it, right? He is still doing it. And so what we want to understand today is, why, how do you know? I mean, yeah, we know the what. We believe the Bible. Okay, great. How do you know? Why, why should you trust this book? Should you trust this book? Is it trustworthy? Right? And, and that's what we want to answer. Because this is an old book. Let's be honest. I mean, thousands of years old. And, and in some places, it seems kind of old-fashioned, too, if we're honest. So how do we know it's true? How do we, if we're going to, I mean, we preach through it. Should we be doing that? Should, should we be doing it a different way? How do we build people up? And so we're going to talk some time today about, I want to I get behind the scenes a little bit and give you some of the why behind the what. And it's going to be a little different than what I usually do, and certainly what Andrew's been doing. Uh, we usually preach through the books of the Bible. We just preach through Jonah. We preach through Matthew in 61 weeks before that. Uh, and so this is a little bit different, but it's important. I did this for our church last year, last year, and it's important for some of you to get the why, because you're going to go off to college. You're going to have coffee with that person from Gulfstream or, or from this chaplain over here saying this, and... And you need to be able to know, hey, what do, what do I believe about this book, right? Because we, it's really a foundation of what we have. And if you don't have it, then what are we, what are we building on? So, um, and from the beginning, we've always needed God to speak from the outside to us and give us truth, right? Even in Genesis chapter 2, God speaks. It's a perfect world, and God speaks and gives truth from outside and gives instruction. And now with sin, even more so, it's not, you can't just go with your gut. You can't just follow your heart. That's great for a Hallmark movie, but it's not good for life. It'll lead you to a train wreck. And so we need God to speak from the outside because we can't, we can't listen to our heart. We have to guard our heart. And we cannot just go with our experience and lean on our education. No, we lean not on our own understanding. We trust in him. And so God speaks and his truth is from the outside and it transcends and we need it to know him. There's certain things you can know about God just from looking at the stars, yes. But ultimately, if God's going to reveal himself specifically, he has to speak, and he has done so in the Scripture. So I want to jump from actually 2 Timothy chapter 3, uh, kind of a key verse on the Scriptures. But how do you know it's true? And, and because it says it's true, is not enough, right? I mean, Star Wars says in a galaxy far, far away a long time ago, doesn't mean it really happened. There wasn't really a Han Solo, as disappointing as that is to me. Uh, it didn't really happen in a galaxy far, far away. So how do we know, besides the fact that it says it, because of course it says it, but so does the Quran, and so does the Book of Mormon, right? 
So how do we know? So uh, first question we're going to ask is, how do we know it's true? Right? How do I know that it's true? And there's many ways we could look at prophecy, but I want to come down to one thing based on uh, 2 Timothy 3.16. So here's what the, uh, the verse says. And it's a very famous verse. Many of you memorize it. That all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. And here's the reason. That the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. So the scripture, the graphe, the writing is, is what the word means, is breathed out, right? Some of your older translations say inspired, right? The idea is it's theonoustos. It's God breathed. That, that whatever has been written down is from the nostrils, so to speak. It's the breath of God in written form, right? It's his words. It's his heart. It's his thoughts on paper, and there's a little bit of misconception. Some of you may think that, you know, how do, we, how do we get this? That, you know, one day Moses went out in the wilderness and God showed up and said, all right, Moses, write this down in the beginning. Right? In the beginning. No, not beginning. Beginning, Moses. The, it, they, we just kind of like, they dictated the, the Bible and they sat down and, and that's not how it worked. Now, in a few places, you know, the Ten Commandments, God said, write this down. But in most places, it wasn't this God dictating his word. In most places, it was Paul in prison saying, I need to write a letter to that church. And he sits down and he writes a letter. And God, whether Paul knew it or not, was moving by the Holy Spirit through the apostle Paul to write without error his words. This is what the apostle Peter teaches us in 2 Peter. He says this, know that first of all, no prophecy of scripture comes from one's own interpretation. No prophecy was ever produced by will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The word carry along there is used in the book of Acts of a sailboat that's being driven or carried along by the wind. It's the same idea that the spirit would come upon Paul or Peter or Moses or Nehemiah or Ezra or whoever, and that he would carry him along so that they would write down God's word from God's heart without error. But yet, he didn't superimpose himself so that it all just sounds rote like God says this. He uses personalities of each person, the education of each person, the background of each person. So when you read the New Testament writers, especially in the original languages, you can tell there's a, there's, John is not Luke. Luke writes like an engineer, like a doctor, like an anesthesiologist, right? Mark and John, they write like a third grade teacher. Spot says hello. Hello means hello. I mean, it's very simple, very, uh, you know, just for like third grade, whereas Luke and the writer of Hebrews, they're very detailed and just very educated because God doesn't just kind of like, you know, make them write things. He uses their personalities, but yet they write it because they're carried along with the Holy Spirit without error, right? And this is what happened in the Old Testament. This happened in the New Testament. This is what the apostles said uh, happened to David. It said that, you're, that you, th th through the mouth of our father David, your servant said, how? By the Holy Spirit. And he quotes the Psalms. When he's writing the Psalms, who's speaking? God, the Holy Spirit. Through, the, through David, through King David. And, and herein lies, the, this is really, if it comes down to it, why do we believe this is true? The, 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 the big E on the I chart, the big answer is, is because this book is sourced in God. The source of it is God, right? So can God lie? Yes or no? No. 
First service is much more interactive than yours. You, you don't, you don't, most of you don't know me, so you're like, oh, I don't know if I should speak. Do I get in trouble? Not for me. You know it from Andrew, but not for me. You're not going <laughs> to tell me. So God can't lie. Has God ever made a mistake? No, right? Uh, has God been wrong about anything? No. So if, if God is the source of this book, right, then this book cannot have errors and thus must be perfect. It must be true. It must be good. If he's the source, right? God cannot lie. It is impossible for him to lie. If he lies, he's not God. And so what you have here is in, in this book, it, the amazing thing about it is you have 66 different little books written by over 40 different authors who lived over 1,500 years apart on different continents, three different continents, written in three different languages, at least three different languages, right? Uh, they have all sorts of backgrounds and educations. I mean, you have blue collar you got doctor, you got tax collector, you got farmer, you got fisherman, you got goat herder. You got all sorts of different people, and they all say the same thing. They're completely unified, even though they, they never met each other, most of them. See, that in itself is a miracle. You cannot even get your family to agree on where you're going to lunch after church. And there's only two restaurants in Richmond Hill. <laughs> right? You got a Hardee's and a Dairy Queen, and that's about it, right? Right. Hardy's closed? You are kidding me. <laughs> you have one restaurant in Richmond Hill. <laughs> uh, see, because we, we, we're, that's just the way we are. But th- that's why it just, it just shows the supernatural nature of the word of God. That it's only God can do that. This is why the writer of Hebrews reminds us that this is the only supernatural book that has ever existed. That the word of God is living, it's active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow. It discerns the thoughts and the hearts. Look, I love... I love Lord of the Rings. Love it. Love C.S. Lewis. Secretly, don't call me a pagan. I actually love the Harry Potter books. I, I know. I mean, you know, Hogwarts, right? But they don't change your life. They don't, they don't convict of sin. They don't reveal who God is and what he has done. This book does. Why? Because it's from him. And the reason he gives it to us it's not because he just needs a bunch of rules for us to follow. Because this book reveals him to us. And so this is how we know him. Because right? you wouldn't find him on your own. You'd say, yeah, I would. No, you didn't. There's no one who seeks God. There's no not one. If God doesn't draw you and open your eyes to the truth of the gospel, you don't get it. And so yet, this is why he gives us his word. So we can know him and so that we could grow. It's, it's adequate. It's, a, it's to equip you for every good work. Right? As, as 2 Timothy says, right? And so every word of it is inspired. Doesn't mean it's all inspiring. Like there's a difference between inspired and inspiring, right? So all, most of us know John 3:16. That's an inspiring verse. All right? We probably can quote it. But most of us uh, cannot quote Exodus 23:19. Anyone know Exodus 23:19? It, it says this, "Don't boil a young goat in its mother's milk." That's your next memory verse for next week. Now, John 3.16 is more inspiring, but both of them are equally inspired. That's the idea. Both of them come from God. Now, the goat thing comes from a specific time when the covenant people are on the old covenant. I get it. But they're, they're no less true. They're no less sourced in God. That's what all means. All scripture is inspired by God. And this is how Jesus viewed the scripture. Every word, every letter, every tense of every verb is God-breathed. And so Matthew 22, real quick, move through this because I went so long in the first service. I gotta move. 
right? But he, he's quoting, he's, he's saying, he's arguing with the Sadducees who deny that there is a resurrection. He says, uh, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And his argument here is from the tense of the verb. He says, that if they're not alive now, because you guys deny that there's a resurrection, if they're not alive, then he would said he was the God of, of Isaac and he was the God of Abraham. But he says, I am because they're alive. And he is using, long story short, the argument from the, even the tenses of the verbs are inspired by God, right? He says that the scripture cannot be broken. He's talking about the Old Testament there, but it applies to the new. He says in the Sermon on the Mount, truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. And iota is what, uh, in the Hebrew language, would have been their smallest letter. It's, it's a yod. It's on the left there. looks like an apostrophe. Boop. And it's the, it's the letter Y, basically, for us. It'd be U. Yeah, it's that sign. That's an iota. He says, down to the smallest letter. And even beyond that, down to the, the dot, or the korea is the Greek word. The difference, I can't do it on both sides because I'm only one man, right? But uh, the difference between a resh and a dela. A resh is an R in Hebrew. A dela is a D in, he- in Hebrew. The only difference is that little bump on the top right there. You see that little bump? That is a dot. That is a korea. Jesus says, down to that little mark, everything the Bible says is true and it will not pass away. That's how high of a view of the scriptures. So if you're like, I still don't know, don't take my word. Take Jesus's. How does Jesus feel about the scripture? His view of scripture is higher than any of us could ever have. So if you don't trust me, trust Jesus. Right? This is how he. This is how he viewed the scriptures. Down to the smallest letter, down to the, the smallest stroke of a pen, it cannot be broken. That God has revealed Himself perfectly. And sufficiently, not exhaustively. Do I know everything? No, I don't. Do I know the time of the millennial kingdom and all this and that? No, I don't. I have some thoughts. Do I know who the Antichrist is? I do. It's Tom Brady. Um, <laughs> but other than that, I don't know everything. Right? But God has revealed himself sufficiently enough for you to know him. Right? Not exhaustively, because you don't need to know everything. But you need to know him. And he has revealed himself in his Word, which is why we preach through his word every week. And the implication of this, I could go on forever, but here's the biggest one. And this is what I hear a lot, right? What I hear a lot, especially in the day today, is, well, Jesus never really said anything about that, right? Because there's only four gospels, and we only have actually 30 days of Jesus's life about completely in all four gospels. So he had a lot more life out there. But Jesus never talked about that. And it's true, Jesus didn't talk about a lot of things. Jesus never talked about dating, Right? So if your high schooler is like, Jesus never had any rules for dating. Yeah, that's because the, the father and the mother picked the, the bride. So yeah, okay, we'll do it that way. I'll pick your bride, right? If you want to go with Jesus's way, all right? Jesus never talked about elections, right? It's a hot, hot topic for some of us maybe. Yeah, because Rome didn't have them. They conquered him, right? But, but see here, the reason why this is significant is because this argument is usually used, especially in our day and age when the sexual ethic is gone in, in the toilet right? Jesus never talked about this. He never talked about this. He never talked about this. Yeah, but did the rest of the scripture talk about this? Because our view of inspiration is the Holy Spirit was moving through Jesus, but he's also moving through Moses. And he's also moving through David. And he's also moving through Jeremiah. And he's also moving through Paul. So you can't say, well, Jesus' words are this on this level and Paul's are here. No, no. They're all sourced in the Holy Spirit. So when, when Paul is speaking, Jesus is speaking. It's the Spirit of Christ 
moving through Paul. It's the Spirit of Christ moving through John. It is the Spirit of Christ moving through James and Jeremiah and Nehemiah and Asaph and Solomon and all these people. That's the view of Scripture. It's all equally inspired and equally true because it's sourced in him. And if you ever do get called away and transferred or you got to go to a different post, different post, whatever, I always tell our people, we'll help you find a church. And the first thing I look at when I'm looking for a church in Chattanooga or Indiana or whatever is I look at their view of, I look at their doctrinal statement. And what do they say about the scripture? Because if they're not clear on the scripture, I wouldn't go to that church. If they have one of these statements, in all things unity, and all, you know, whatever, and they don't have, that's fine. I'm all for unity amongst Christians. But I want to see that you believe that every word of the, uh, every word in the scripture is true. I want to see that. I want to see that the 66 books of the scripture are there. And if I don't see it, I'm not going to go there. Because if it's foggy in the pew, it's going to be super foggy and cloudy. I mean, foggy in the pulpit is going to be foggy and foggier in the pew, right? And if you have nothing, if I'm just up here telling you 80 stories, as much as I would love to do that. I got nothing to say. Nothing that changes your life. And Andrew doesn't either. So why is it true? Why can't we trust it? Because it's sourced in God. So then the question is this, then. If all scripture is true because it's sourced in God, what is all scripture? Right? What should be in the scripture? Do we have the right books? And we got 66 books in our Bibles, right? That's kind of an odd number. It's not like seven. You know, we always hear seven's the number of perfection. Or 10, that's the big 10. I mean, 66, that's one letter away from 666. That's kind of a weird number, actually. Right? So why? And you got to understand the Old Testament, uh, Jew does not have 39 books of the Old Testament, right? They, they broke it up a different way. Uh, but, I mean, you hear it all the time. What about the, there's a gospel of Philip out there, and there's a gospel of Thomas, and there's, uh, you know, I got the, my Catholic buddies. They got a bunch of extra books. They got dragons in their books. That's kind of fun. And, and uh, you know, what about the Jedi sacred text? What about all those? I mean, you know, what about all these other things that are out there? How do we know that we have the right books? All right? It's a great question. And what we're talking about is canonicity. That's, that's a fancy word. Uh, canon just means rule or a measuring rod. Not talking about artillery here. Uh, we're talking about uh, a measuring rod. How do I know... Uh, this is this is the rule of, of what should be in. And just to keep it simple, and, and I did it too long in the last one, so I'll move quickly. Uh, it's, it's, there's two kind of uh, different thoughts. You got the Old Testament canon, you got the New Testament canon, right? For the Old Testament, the only question you really have to ask is, what did Jesus use? And Jesus used the 39 books we have. Now, they broke it in differently. They broke it into three different sections, because remember, they're reading scrolls. They're not reading like an ESV Bible. Uh, but but he, he refers to this in, uh, your, sorry, I missed the slide. What is our scripture? Um, and, and he refers to it in Luke 24 when he's on the Emmaus Road. He says, this is what I told you when I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me and the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. That's the typical Hebrew uh, three-part division of the Old Testament, right? Everything is contained. The 39 books we have are contained in that. The, last, the first book of the Hebrew Bible is Genesis like ours. The last book of the Hebrew Bible is actually Second Chronicles which he refers to in Matthew 22 when he says, everything uh, from the Abel, which is Genesis, to the blood of Zechariah, son of Barakai, that's found in 2, Corinthians, 2 Chronicles 24. He said, everything between those two things. The, the idea there is from the beginning to the end, that's the view Jesus had. And really the only dispute about this is for, for the uh, Roman church, who includes the Apocrypha, which was never accepted by the Jews, even though they knew about it. Uh, which Jesus never used, which is never one time quoted in the New Testament, which almost every other Old Testament book is, right? Almost every, or referred to. And ultimately, it's, it's got errors in it. There's historical errors in it. There's theological errors. The doctrine of purgatory comes from the Apocrypha. 
The doctrine of praying for dead people comes from the Apocrypha, right? Never found in the New Testament. So it's, Old Testament's easy. The more, more kind of relevant question for us, what about New Testament? How, do, how, did, they, how did you get these 27 books, All right? Because what you've, you've heard and you see kind of the movie with Tom Hanks running around with like an assassin nun, you know, assassin Catholics chasing after him because he gets the secret, is that a bunch of guys with funny hats got together and this council and this council and they voted on these books and these books were left out because they didn't vote for it and this vote, you know, and that's not what happened. They did have councils, but these councils didn't decide anything. What these councils did was recognize what was already being considered authoritative in the, in, the, in the church, and they put their stamp of approval on it officially. But they were just recognizing that which God had already done. They weren't making, these books of the Bible weren't made authoritative because they were on, the, on, on some list. They were recognized as authoritative, so they were put on a list. That's kind of what happened. If you kind of read, but there was, there's not, there wasn't just five different rules, but there's all sorts of different factors that went into it. Number one is the, the book had to be uh, tied somehow to an apostle, right? So you had the 12 and a couple other apostles. I know we throw that term around in the church a lot. There's this apostle and this apostle and this apostle, but in the, in the early church, there was only a limited number and you had, there were several different rules. Number one, you had to see Jesus alive, so anybody that calls himself an apostle down the road here, if, if he's seen Jesus alive, then I want to talk to him, first of all. But there's no modern-day apostles like this. Number two, you had to be validated by signs and wonders, according to 1 Corinthians. You had to perform miracles to be called an apostle. I mean, legitimate. I'm not talking about, oh, yeah, you bring in some guy that's limping down. Yeah, his, his plantar fasciitis is gone now. Look. No, I'm talking about like this person was dead and now they're alive because Peter raised them. I'm talking about that person was blind and now they see. He was a cripple and now he's running. That kind of miracle, that validated them. And, and they were so authoritative in the early church that there were, because they had been with Jesus, right? This is Ephesians 2.20. They are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, the New Testament prophets, right? And their words were written down to what we now have as a scripture, and that's why Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2, when we came, we are so thankful you came that you didn't accept our word, but you accepted it for what it was, the word of God. They were seen as authoritative. And so all the books in the New Testament were put in because they were tied to or written by an apostle. Only four or five books of the New Testament were not written by an apostle. Mark, Luke, and Acts, written by, obviously, Luke, as you studied. Uh, Jude, remember, is the brother of Jesus, so he's got an in there kind of. And then the writer to Hebrews, whoever that is. And everything else is written by an apostle. But Luke is closely tied to an apostle, to Paul, because he's on this missionary journey. That's how he knows what's going on with Paul. And Mark is closely tied to Peter. And the writer of Hebrews is clearly tied to all of them because he knows them and he mentions them. And so there's a tie that they recognize this is authoritative. These guys are the ones that God has sent to us. There's also another thing they looked at. There's unity with other books. They're saying the same thing. They're all talking about this guy, Jesus, crucified, resurrected, hope in him, put your faith in him. He's the cornerstone, right? Th these other, you know, Gospel Thomas and all these other things, they, there's errors in them. They lie, right? They're not truthful. And if it's not truthful, it can't be from God. I mean, the Gospel of Thomas is a primary one that most people dated around 200 AD. Thomas was killed in India in like the, the 70s or 80s. So whoever wrote the letter from Thomas is lying off the bat, saying it's from someone it's not. And it's all of them. They're all written second, third, fourth century. So there's a lie right up front, right? Not to mention the stuff in them is just wacky. Gospel of Thomas says this. Peter's supposed to be saying this. Women are not worthy of life. 
All right, that's, that's a real encouraging statement, Peter. Uh, and then Jesus responds by making women into men so that they can enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, does that sound like uh, a New Testament? No. It sounds very Gnostic, which is what was going on in second, third, and fourth century, right? Because it's not real. It's not legit. And so they recognized this. They said, no, this is not from God. This is from God. There was a self-attesting nature to these books like that it just seemed like it was from God, right? That, that Jesus' words, my sheep, hear my voice. They listen to me. They recognize me, right? That's what Jesus promises. His sheep hear his voice. And so they, they would read these things, and it would be like, wow, this is from God, right? This, this, is, this, is, this is truth. Have any of you ever read uh, portions of the Book of Mormon or the Koran? I, I would encourage you to do so, not for spirit, just so you see the, the difference. I, I've read multiple passages. It's just weird. It it's, it's, doesn't make sense. In fact, what they often do is they kind of hack verses from the Old Testament and they throw them in there. It's, it's like, it, it just makes no sense. It's convoluted. It, it, there's just no clear power in it. But when I read Romans, it's just different. It's, it's the word of God, and there's something because my sheep hear my voice that God speaks to my soul through it because it's truth, and they recognize that. They also saw that there were certain books that recognized other books. There was, a, there was New Testament books that were recognizing other books as Scripture. So Peter, for instance, in 2 Peter, says some, one of my favorite statements in all the Bible. He's talking about Paul, and he says, Paul wrote to you according to the wisdom given him as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. And so Peter is saying, you know what, Paul? He's a Presbyterian. He's way up here, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> he says, the ignorant and unstable twist what Paul's writing as they do the other scriptures. Peter in 60-ish AD is already referring to Paul's letters as what? Other scripture. There is an early recognition. I mean, Five years after he's writing these things, that this is, this is not just a letter. This is scripture. This is on par with Moses. This is on par with Psalms. This is on par with Zechariah. Early on, Paul does the same thing. So he says here in Second uh, Timothy, he says, The scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. He's quoting Deuteronomy there, right? Classic Old Testament passage. And then he says, the laborer deserves his wages. You know where that's quoted from? From Luke not from the Old Testament, from the New. But yet he calls Luke's gospel scripture. And my point is this. It already early on in the church, they are recognizing other apostles' writings and other people's writings as scripture. And that is one of the ways they identified it. Not to mention the church fathers and the millions of quotes that they, that they had. By 170 AD, pretty much the, the canon that you have right now, the the 27 books was pretty much all there except for just three letters, uh, Hebrews, James, and Third John, which they added soon after that. Why? Because God wanted to preserve his word for you so that you living in Richmond Hill 2023 would know him and know his heart. Not everything the apostles wrote was scripture. Paul wrote multiple letters to multiple churches. He wrote at least three, I think four that he refers to, to, to Corinth itself. But we don't have Third Corinthians. We don't have 4th Corinthians. Why? Because those letters weren't scripture. But God has preserved 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Why? Because they were. Because God wants you to know him, wants you to know his heart, and you can trust him because it's sourced in him. And so the, the last question really is kind of we 
narrows down. Well, if we know we have the right books and we know it's sourced in God, then how accurate is your copy? Right? Because I read the ESV, the extra spiritual version. Right? Some of you are reading the NIV, the not inspired version, and that's okay. Some of you reading the new, anybody got a new American Standard? A couple in there, we got a new NASB, good 90s Christian. Everyone, every Christian in the 90s was reading the NASB. How many King James? Old school, King James, great. New King James, right? Here we go. So we have in this room, just in this room, and that's not counting, someone's got the message. They're not admitting it, but they got the message. And someone's got the new living. So we got all these translations, the Holman or whatever it's called now. We got all these translations. How do we know the words are accurate? Translated from Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic. How do we know? Because here's, what, here's what's going to happen, right? Some of you young folks, you're going to go off to college. You're going to have this chaplain over here who was trained at Duke Divinity or Princeton. And they're going to tell you, we don't even have any of the copies of the original. We don't have the original Ephesians. And you know what? They're right. We don't. You know how many copies of the original copies of the New Testament letters we have? You know how many? Zero. Zero. Right? And what they'll tell you this, and I, I'm going to, I'm going to, this is a caveat, so don't walk out now and think I'm, I'm teaching you heresy because I'm going to explain this to you because I want you to understand why. And if, if, if you get mad at me, just blame Andrew because he's in charge anyway. <laughs> but in the, so we, we have manuscripts, but you know, in the manuscripts that we have, there are over 200,000 variants. A variant means a different word, a different spelling, a different something. Actually, there's more variants than there are words in the New Testament. That's, that's how Bart Ehrman, anyone ever hear Bart Ehrman? Some of you, you yeah, okay, maybe one or two, a couple, couple first service folks, no. He's the big guy, and this is his world. Don't, you, there's some good debates you can go watch once you're ready for it. But he, this is his, his big argument. There's more variants than there are words in the New Testament. And that is meant to shock you and to get you to say, Genesis 3, did God really say? It's to, to get you to doubt the word of God. That's, that's the goal. And I'm, I'm going to explain to you where those variants come from and why, and then you're going to be like, oh, okay, I get it now. And it's not as big a deal as it sounds like. Uh, but how do I know if there's that many variants, how do I know that this is the word of God, that it's true, right? That Jesus is really God, that the, the virgin birth is true, that, that Jonah was really in a whale, that there was really a flood. How do I know these things? All right, let me phrase it to you this way. Another movie. This wasn't 80s. This was like 90s, maybe 2000s. You ever see a national treasure? Right, there you go. Benjamin Gates steals the uh, Declaration of Independence, right? What happens if that was true? What if Benjamin Gates stole the Declaration, right? And then he lost it. Oops, it's in the Delaware River, right? It's gone. And then someone comes behind him and with, you know, old paper starts copying it, but changes it a little bit. We hold these truths not to be self-evident. All men were not created equal, right? What if it takes out that, that life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness? What if it takes out phrases and then makes copies and then, and then it gets infiltrated? And so now you have this one and you have this one and you're like, which one's the original? How do we know what it really said in 1776? How do we know what Thomas Jefferson really wrote? The answer is we have so many manuscripts that say what it originally said that when something differs a little bit, it's so evident. We're like, oh, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's, not, the, that's not the original because we have a plethora of, of manuscript evidence. When it comes to the, kind of this topic, um, 
in, in antiquity, uh, the, the number two uh, uh, book or, or uh, document in antiquity with the second most amount of manuscript evidence is Homer's Iliad and Odyssey, written 900 BC, which is old. And it has uh, a staggering 650 copies of its original, uh, copies of the original manuscript. That's, that's considered, that's bonkers, right? Second most. When it comes to the scripture, nothing compares. We have well over 25,000 manuscripts of the scripture, and we're discovering more and more and more every year. So when it comes to historical evidence, we have so much of the copies of the original that we can tell, oh yeah, this one over here has a little variant, but it's not a big deal. And I'll explain why we get variants. But think about this. Up until the 1450s, how did everything get passed on, right? Mr. Xerox wasn't born until 1450s, and he created the printing press. And that, someone in the first service said it wasn't Xerox, it was Gutenberg. I know that. That was trying to make it relevant, right? All right. But uh, in the 1400, up to that point, you were copying everything by hand, right? You got papyri. You don't have a gel pen. You have a feather, you got a little, you know, little thing you're dipping in to get the ink out, and you're writing on paper, a weak sauce paper, not like nice paper, but you're writing old, old leather, or you're writing on stone, or you're writing on wood, and here's what you're copying, all right? This is what it, Old, Old Testament, New Testament originally was all capital letters, no spaces, no commas, no verse 16, you know, no, none of that. This is what you're copying, Right? And so it's long hours. You're a scribe. The scribes did this seven, eight, nine hours a day by candlelight, no coffee, <laughs> sitting there, and all you're doing is this all day long. Once in a while, give the guy a break. He made a mistake. He copied something wrongly. And what happens if he copies it wrong? And then his copy's complete. And then they're like, okay, copy this now. What's going to happen to the guy that comes behind him? He's going to copy whatever he had. And that is how you get what we call variants, right? What if the guy had horrible handwriting? You're like, I can't tell what that is, right? I mean, this is, this is the Isaiah scroll from the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? Third century BC. I mean, look at that. How could you even determine what that is? And what if it's a little faded? And what... Or maybe you're just, your eyes closed for a minute. You're just, oh man, it's been a long day. Got to get a great night's sleep last night. So they made copyist errors. Over 200,000 of them. But, but none of them change any doctrine. We don't find, oh, Jesus wasn't really born a virgin. Oh, Jesus didn't really. No, it's, it's most of it. And I'll show you our simple spelling errors. Or, or they switched Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus. It's that kind of stuff. But see, Bar Ehrman wants you to doubt the word of God. So you all oh, know. But we have, again, we have so much evidence of what, the scripture says, we don't need to worry about it. And there's really, th- th- this, this science, for, for this is very engineer. If you're an engineer, this gets, get, gets, gets you going, right? But this, this science of doing this, of trying to discover what the original is, it's called textual criticism. And it's a very, very small group of men and women in the world who still dress like they live in the 70s because that they've been in closets doing this for the last 40 years, right? But they're very smart. They study multiple languages of Syriac and Aramaic and Greek and Hebrew, all unspoken languages these days. We're talking not, not modern Greek, Koine Greek, not modern Hebrew, Old Testament Hebrew. And they spend their time 
discovering new manuscripts and, and, and trying to figure out what the original said. And they do a phenomenal job. That's how you have translations now. But they come, there's, there's two reasons why you'll find variants. There's what we call in, unintentional errors. That's, that's the oops. And there's intentional errors. And let me give you the most common unintentional errors. It's a mistaken letter, number one. Right? They didn't copy words a lot of times. They would just copy letters because they're combined and there's no spacing. And so once in a while, you'd miss a letter. Again, or you'd miss a yod, a little yod would drop out. Or, or you copy a resh and it was a dalet. And they're so similar, it, you can't tell the difference. And because they're a high view of scripture, they're not going to change it, a lot of them. So even if they're like, that doesn't make any sense, they're going to copy it because they viewed it. I don't want to take away from the word of God. Right? And so they would copy whatever was there before. And so you're looking down and you're like, uh, 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 and, you're just co- and you miss a letter. Oops, that's a variant. That's one of the 200,000. It's not a big deal. It's very clear. It's very evident to see, but that's what happens. Another one would be omission. Like the le- uh, uh, you omit a word, complete word, because the last letter of that word was X. And so you, you copy X and then you pick back up. And there was an X four letters later. And so you, ac- you jump down to that and you just missed four letters. But you can spot these things because it's very easy because it doesn't make any sense. This is the kind of stuff that happened. Another way would be homophony. This is very common. Um, one of the ways that they would copy the text would be uh, the head scribe would be up front and he'd be reading this text and there'd be seven or eight younger scribes out there and they'd all be copying as he read. She'd be like, for God so love. For God so love. The world that he. And they would, that's what they would do. And sometimes they would say a word that sounds like another word, and they would copy the, other, other, the wrong word. For instance, if I said, everyone in the room, I want you to write this sentence down. All right, ready? Their car is not working, but they're going over there anyway. Now, some of you have struggled with the word there, and it's clear from your emails. Uh, <laughs> you know, you would, you would put their car... Their car is not working, but their go- you would mix up the theirs, right? Because you don't know how to word they're supposed to work, and you need to go back to fourth grade for that. Uh, that it's the same idea what happens in Sometimes you hear a word, but they write the wrong word down. This is a, cl- a classic example is Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. The word we have is echomen, right? But some of your translations have a little note that says, or let us have. Why? Because there's another word in Greek, echomen. It sounds the exact same. The only difference is an omicron or an omega. Some of you are like, I know my Greek alphabet. I was a sigap. Yeah, good for you. All right. But the only difference in, in the word is the letter, but they sound the same. So if this guy's reading echomen, this guy writes, we have. This guy writes, let us have. And it's, it's a different meaning, but it's, it's easy to spot why it happened is the point, right? Uh, metathesis, which is this reversal of two words, Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, or they just drop the Jesus and they just have Christ. Sometimes that would happen. Um, and then another one would be uh, homeo teluton, which is a fancy word for saying sometimes they would, they'd be copying a word and they'd pick up at the last word would be God. And so they'd finish God and they'd come back and they'd find God, but God would be three lines down, but their eyes saw God and that was the last word. And so they, they leave out an entire verse. They leave out an entire verse by accident because their eyes are going back and forth, right? A classic example of this is Matthew 12, 47. If you have a Bible, turn, try, to, try to find Matthew 12, 47. How many of you have a Matthew 12, 47? Like four of you. 
How many of you don't have a Matthew 12, 47? Most of you, right? Because the editors of the ESV, NIV, and a couple others have said, this is probably not original, but the editors of the NASB and the King James had said, this is original. What happened is the last word of verse 46 is the Greek word lalesai. And the last, verse of verse, the last word of verse 30, 47 in the Greek is lalesai. And so the scribe clearly picked up the last lalesai, and he dropped off, and he skipped an entire verse and went to verse 48. And so the text critic has decided which one's original. And so some of your translations have said, this is not, and some of you have said, this is. The only thing you lose is Jesus and his brother, I mean, Mary and his brothers were looking for him. So that's the verse that was left out. But that's what happens. My, my point is this. That's how it works. And so they made mistakes sometimes in copying, but because we have a plethora of manuscripts, we know what the original is. And 99.99% of the time, the only thing is verses like that, you're like, ah, you know, and each translation usually will put it in the bottom, um, like my ESV does. It says this, and, and it lets you know what it could be there or not. Point is that it happened unintentionally, and sometimes it happened intentionally. Sometimes they would change a verse because, for instance, uh, a city's name had changed. So if you, you know, 50 years ago, you had the city of Bombay, around maybe not 50 years ago. What, where's Bombay now? There is no Bombay. It's Mumbai. Different city's name. When I grew, I grew up in the 80s, how many planets do we have if you, in the solar system in the 80s? Nine. How many are there now? Well, it depends. Yes, right? <laughs> but for some reason, they dropped Pluto. Right? Now, Pluto's not a planet anymore. It's a, you know... It's a dwarf planet, right? They created a new name, but that, it's a planet, right? Or isn't it? So the new science books are like 8.5 planets. The old science books are nine. So what happens is they update the language. That's what happens sometimes, especially Old Testament. A city was called this, they changed the name. And so there's a variant, right? That, that it's, it happens all the time. Harmonization. There's a, a text that seems similar to another. So a scribe might say, hey, that's similar to this verse. Classic example of this. Oh, wait, fusion. This is another one. I missed I miss this one. Sometimes words uh, together. So what does this say? Read it. Uh -huh. All right. All the atheists in the room said, God is nowhere. And all the Christians said, God is now here. And sometimes this is what happened when they were trying to separate words they, 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 or separate lines. It's a classic example in the Greek text. Allah ois means but for whom? Allah ois means for others. Two different words. But this often would happen, right? And so sometimes there's a variant because of this. There's a variant because sometimes they try to harmonize a text with another text. And so Colossians and Ephesians were both written by Paul from jail, very similar. In Colossians 1, he says, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Ephesians 1 says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. And there's some variants in the Colossians text to add through his blood. Why? Because the, the scribe clearly knew the Ephesians text, and so he puts it in there because like, oh, he meant to put this, but he didn't because they're so similar in nature. But we can tell what the original is because we have so many. And then there's liturgical editions sometimes, just like when you write in your Bible, amen. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah, right? And so a scribe would see that, and they'd be like, wait, should I copy amen? And so they copy amen, and now we have amen. And the biggest example of this is in the Lord's Prayer, which you guys sang this morning, right? Which in the original ends, deliver us, not, deliver us from temptation and the evil one, end. But then some of your translations say, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever, amen, which is a late addition by some scribe who was so excited about Jesus' words that he just had to add a whole thing that now we sing, which is fine. It's not bad. It's just not part of the original. So that's, that's, that's the why. And, and I say all this to just remind you, 
So when you hear a Bart Ehrman or you see a debate between someone that's saying, oh, yeah, there's all these mistakes and all these variants, you can say with confidence, no, we know what the original said because God has preserved his word so well that we know. And we have so much evidence and we're discovering more and more. I just read the other day that there, the, one of the oldest Old Testament uh, Bibles was sold for, do you see this, for $38 million, right, by this guy who's not even a Christian. He's not even a religious Jew. He just bought it because he's like, ah, oh, that's a good deal, I guess, $38 million for a Bible. I'm like, I sold you mine for 1000 I mean, come on. But uh, it's really cool how God has preserved his word. And here, here's, here's another story from antiquity. We'll wrap up in a minute. I know, I'm going long. So until 1948, the oldest, the oldest Old Testament manuscripts we had dated from about 900 AD, which is old. But compared to the fact that the Old Testament was finished 400 BC. That's a long time. 1,500 years in between the finish of a book and the uh, the first copy we have. That's a lot of time for the arg- argument could be, well, it's corrupted. You don't really know what the original said because it's 1,500 years. It's just, tr- and that's true because for the textual credit, the closer you get to the original, the better, right? If you have the original, you know, you got the original Harry Potter. That's probably worth some money, and the, everything else is the third edition, fourth edition. These are, these are further on. But the closer to the original you get, the better and the more accurate, theoretically. And so 1,500 years is a long time. But then in 1948, a little boy was throwing stuff, throws something into a cave, and he hears, he goes in there, and they discover what now we know is the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? And the Dead Sea Scrolls date two, three hundred years pre-Christ. So now we have something that's not only before Christ, it's, it's closer to the original. And when they lay the Isaiah scroll and all these Old Testament passages versus the one we have, they are virtually identical with little spelling errors here and there, just like we have. Why? Because God has preserved his word. And, and that's what he does, right? Um, here's, here's, the, here's the Dead Sea Scrolls. This is Ten Commandments from the Dead Sea Scrolls. You can read it. Thou shalt not. Right there. There's right there. Right? But he preserved his word. This is... Uh, the Chester PD Codex. This is 100, 125 years after the Apostle Paul, and it's the entire Pauline corpus, every one of his letters, and some of the Hebrews, right? With, and less than 200 years from the original. This, is, this one right here is probably the most significant manuscript we have. It's called Codex Sinaiticus, found in uh, Mount Sinai. This is the entire uh, Bible, basically, except for a few little pieces here and there missing because it's 2,000 years old or something, or 1,500 years old. This dates less than, three, two, less than 200 years, I think, from the, from, uh, from the Apostle Paul's letters. So you're talking th- 300-ish AD, less than 200-ish years from the original, and we have the entire New Testament. Right? Why? Because God supernaturally has preserved his word. Right? And we're discovering more and more constantly, not to mention just the millions of comments, the, fa- the, the early church fathers, Polycarp, all these guys uh, wrote. Why? Because God wants you to know him. You go back to the, why are we even talking about this? And I know this is, some of you are like, oh, I can't wait till Andrew gets back next week. Don't worry, you get Andrew next week. But the reason this is important is because God wants you to know him. And you can trust. You don't have to check your brain at the door to follow Jesus. There is a, there is a faith piece, right? You don't, you know, we, we, we trust what we read, we don't see Jesus. I haven't seen the risen Christ, but I believe with all my heart that he died for my sins and that he rose again, that he is sitting at the right hand of the Father and one day he will return. Why? Because of this book. So there is a not seeing piece, but you don't have to check your brain at the door to be a Christian, right? You can with confidence 
come to this book because God has preserved it. It's sourced in him. You have the right books and you have the right words. And it is profitable for teaching, what we do, for reproof, for correcting, this is sin, this is not, for training, this is positive in righteousness, that you may be adequate. In the original Greek text, that word adequate is right, adequate is right up front. That you will be competent and you can be confident and you are equipped for every good work. Again, me and Andrew, Coleman, my whole preaching team, every church in America, apart from this, we have nothing to say. We really don't. The reason we do expository preaching, honestly, it is, it is easier. Because I, I can't be creative enough to come up with something new for you every week. And neither can he. But see, God, we don't need to. Because God has revealed himself in his word. It's sufficient. And we just need to tell you what he has said. Right? And that's enough to equip you for us every good work, to make you a man and woman adequate to follow, not just to read it, it's good to read it, but to follow it. And this, I'm thankful that y'all are going to next week move in that direction, because it's not just enough to be a hearer of the word, we want to be doers of the word. And so I'd encourage you, I would start with reading, ask God, the Holy Spirit, Spirit, speak to me through your word, which you sourced, what is living and active. You ask God to do that and see if he starts speaking to you through his word. If we ask anything according to his word, he hears us. And if we know he hears us in the things we've asked, we know we have the request which we asked of him. That is a prayer that is according to the will of God, that, he would, that you would draw near to him, that he would draw near to you. So start praying that way and start looking for his word to speak to you, and I promise you it will. Not because uh, I'm a great preacher, Andrew, is because God is good and he is true and he wants you to know him. And that's our prayer for you and for Richmond Hill as our sister church. We're not the mother church. We're sister churches. So let me pray. Uh, and we'll sing. And I'm sorry for going long, but I'm really not sorry. Um, <laughs> that's okay. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for uh, your word, which is good and true. And I pray that um, your people would delight in it. Uh, you say, sanctify them in truth. This is what you pray, Lord Jesus. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. And so I pray that this church, like ours, be set apart as holy uh, for, for your truth to just to transform us to renew our minds, and to draw us to you. Use, uh, use this church, Lord, to reach this county and this city uh, for the gospel, and we trust you. We're so thankful for them, the encouragement they are to us, and uh, our partnership in the gospel until you return. Uh, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you'll stand with us, we'll sing together.